You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scripture this evening is from Mark 1, verses 1 through 13. Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Hey, my name is Ethan, and I'm one of the pastors here, man. It's good to be with you. It is, uh, I know we've been all over the place this year, and I know we say this every week to some degree, but it is so good to be in a room to, like, hear your voices filling it. Like, I think in this past year, I've maybe said this a few times, but I I think about when leading worship or or when being in this room, there are a lot of different things happening. And, And one thing that I hope that you've maybe become more in tune with this year is relying on the voice and the words that the people around you are saying and maybe just like tuning your ear to it to realize, man, these are actually for me. I need to hear my brothers and sisters in this room to lift me up, to encourage me, to continue on. And so it's just so good to hear your voices. (laughs) I just want to say that. It's a blessing. And last March, next week actually marks a year ago, we called up a few leaders in our congregation and and had a, you know, somewhat impromptu meeting. It was like kind of spur of the moment. We gathered together and we sat around my dining room table and it was a scene that in many ways, probably in this moment, seems pretty foreign. We had no masks on. We piled around the table. There were, I don't know, maybe 15 or so of us. We were crammed in fairly tight, not socially distant, and, uh, and in that moment, we all had varying degrees, varying um, degrees of comprehension of how the coronavirus, something that we had heard about out there on the world news, had made its way here to Lawrence, Kansas. And it was in that meeting that we decided the following Sunday we would not gather for regular worship. We devised a plan from that meeting, and and we tasked each uh, person with kind of a a part, something to do to get the word out to you all. 
And I remember like thinking it in my head, and, and then I'm sure someone verbalized it to, to some extent, but where, where we were just thinking, man, in a few weeks, when that happens, when, when we flatten the curve, this was a term that was like, you know, proved your sophistication in that moment. When we flatten the curve, we'll resume the status quo. Well, here we are. About a year later, right? And, and we're still like, those of you that have been with us for a while, we're still not meeting in Central. We're still not meeting on Sunday mornings. We're on Sunday evenings. We're still live streaming our services, this kind of love-hate thing. If you are watching at home, we love you. We just don't like that we have to get this to you. We wish you could be with us. It's just, it's not that we don't like doing it. It's just, it's a hard, it's a, it's a clunky thing for us, I suppose. But in the midst of that, we've, we've had all these things come in. Masks are now a, a part of our everyday attire in the public sphere. And let's be real, like actually for us here in the United States, our, our inconveniences are really minimal. And this is a, just a short list of some of the external realities of today. So think about like what's happened beyond what you can just look at and observe, what you can see. Where have you learned over the past year? Where have you learned things about yourself in the past 12 months? Where have you like bought more, worried more, binged more? Or perhaps like what are you still ignoring? What are you still dismissing? Like still, maybe you sense it, but you're choosing not to engage with it. You're choosing to simply overlook it, as has been the story to your whole life, right? Where have you come more face-to-face with the reality that you maybe have this thing in you that's terribly unsatisfied, that you might actually have need in your life? Do you realize this? I hope that over the past year, like, and perhaps for the sake of today's text, we'll call it the wilderness year. I hope that over the past year, you might have not just simply resolved to to look at your losses and and find some kind of self-discovery that hinges within you, but I, I hope and pray that by looking inside, by evaluating what's going on in you, what you feel, that you've more readily realized ways that or been, I'll say, been convicted of ways that the Jeremiah leans us in this reality, that ways that you've forsaken God, as Jeremiah writes in, in, verse, in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, where we've forsaken God, the fountain of living waters, where we've hewed out cisterns for ourselves, broken cisterns that hold no water. And so let's run with that just for a second, kind of that picture If a cistern doesn't hold water, then where do you find yourself? Thirsty, right? You don't have water. You're longing, perhaps despairing or or hopeless, running to something else to look to quench your thirst. And so whether you've kind of dug into this conversation throughout the year or And maybe you've been aware of it for a long time, or or now you're just beginning to do the diligence to wrestle in it. If you find yourself there, or even as I'm just saying this, you're starting to kind of turn over within you. 
and beginning to realize this thirst within you. My hope is that tonight, and not just tonight, but every week that we gather together, every day of your life, that we would hold ourselves out before the Spirit of the living God, and we would ask him to speak to us. And I think that if we would have a posture of receptivity to hear what he has to say to us, especially when looking at his word, I think it might actually change us. And I want to, in a way, kind of raise a bit of a caution sign as I even track down there. I regularly have this fear that whenever we talk about kind of our affections, that's what this thirst is, right? Like we're, we're longing for something. Our desires, our longings, our loves. When, when we talk about these types of things, I'm afraid that sometimes we consider our predicament as like simply a, a reality, a result of... Uh, weakness or woundedness. I'm not saying that weariness or, or brokenness has nothing to do with where you find yourself, but kind of just bear with me in this. I, I think that when, when we kind of talk about that which we long for, we sometimes want to put it off on something that's happened to us. And we don't realize the proverbial wells that we've dug, the cisterns that we've hewed out, as Jeremiah mentions. And, and the thing is about the wells that we've dug, they didn't just show up. Like, it took work on our, on our side. We had to go after it to dig it. And so maybe there's even a, a natural movement to dig a well where that's, we'll say that's the flesh, the sinful nature of us that it just dug out and it's kind of almost the involuntary sin of your life. You see, we've sought after satisfaction apart from the living God. And this is precisely sin in need of repentance. And so what we need to hear today is, is not just a, a list of things that we need to do, but what we need is to more clearly see Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We need to have our eyes and our ears, our hearts, our entire beings fixed upon him, and we need to stop looking to the dry wells of our digging. We need to turn, repent, and look to the one who stands and offers to us, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so this leads us to this evening's text. Tonight we're starting a new series through the book of Mark. I realize we threw you a curveball last week. Ryan jumped into Jeremiah, and throughout the week, I've actually had a few people like, man, how long are we going to be in Jeremiah? <laughs> One week. That's how long. But as we look at the book of Mark, we're going to be looking at Jesus. <laughs> we're going to be looking at what he says, but primarily kind of what he does. And so if you've read Mark's gospel account, you're, you're familiar with kind of the rapid-fire nature of the narrative. If, if you've not read it, well, you just heard Brian read the first 13 verses, and this probably stood out to you. And in the coming weeks, as we look further into it, we might be in it a long time. As, you, as we look at it, you, you'll notice how often words like immediately stand out to really keep and capture the, the movement of the account. So as we look at the book of Mark, 
I want to mention a couple things that I hope to prove helpful, and, and then we'll get into the text. The Gospel of Mark was recorded by John Mark, and it is the Apostle Peter's testimony of what he experienced with Jesus. So as we look at the, the text, we're going to see that Peter shows up in most every scene, and, and here's a couple of reasons why that's important and reliable, why that makes this book reliable. Think about when you retell a story or someone you know retells a story. If the story that's being told spans any significant amount of time, well, it's fairly simple, possibly convenient, to gloss over the parts where you or the person telling the story is deemed unreliable or insignificant, where you're a fool, right? You kind of leave those parts out if it's a big story. And here's what I mean. If the gospel according to Mark is Peter's eyewitness testimony, then why would Peter have Mark include something like chapter 14 of Mark? It's here in verse 29 where we see Jesus foretelling Peter's denial of him. And Peter responds, kind of tries to rebuttal Jesus, and he says, no, 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 I swear this isn't going to happen. But furthermore, then later in that chapter, we actually see Jesus' foretelling fulfilled. So why would you have someone include these sections that more or less make you out to be a fraud, kind of a phony, a fake, unless the reason they're included in the story is to point to the reliability of another? Mark records Peter testifying of his own humanity and failure to in turn shine light on the divinity of Jesus. And this is what Mark sets out to do from the very beginning of this gospel. In the opening line of the book, we just heard it, he pens this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark makes clear the subject of the account, and this is crucial for everything that follows in the entire book. And it's crucial for us, not just so that we can better understand the 16 chapters that make up this book, but for our entire lives. You see, the reality that Jesus is the Son of God, it changes everything. If he's the Son of God, if he's the promised Messiah of old that the Old Testament talks about, if he's the fulfillment of all God's promises, then he's worthy of our worship. If he is this, then we must respond to this reality by shifting, turning, and repenting, as we even see declared in this text today, and, and centering our lives on Jesus. So who is Jesus? This is an important question. I think it's the most important question in your life. It's the question that I hope we wrestle with today. Whether you believe Jesus to be, as Mark says, the Son of God, or whether you believe him to like just be some good teacher. Whether you believe him to be a fake or a phony or just another person in the midst of human history, wherever you are in this moment, man, I hope that you'll actually engage in this book as we walk through it. 
that you would see what it has to say. And, and as we walk through this gospel account, I hope that you'd just be maybe open to see what Mark's gospel proclaims about Jesus and, and to see if it seems like good news. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do ask that your word would settle in this room, that it would settle upon our hearts and we would be attentive to it. And so would you open our ears by the power of your spirit to look at Jesus, to hear of who he is, to even bring our lives and lay them out before and see the implications of what we experience and, and what he does and where we're going with this, that, that we would see a reality of, of what it means that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And in seeing him more clearly, would you transform us? Would you free us from the bondage that holds us in the, the sins that entangle us? Would we see how he identifies with our life and, and would we, by the power of your spirit, receive that? It's in his name. Amen. Today's text is, in a way, the prologue, the first 13 verses, the prologue to the book of Mark. And, and here's really just the main idea where we're going to go. It's really for the whole book, but main idea for today's text. Clearly laid out. Mark made it easy. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we're going to look at th more or less three kind of witnesses that build this case. And I get that even as I say three witnesses, you're going to question that. Here's what I mean. We're going to look at how Mark declares that, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. We're going to look at how John the Baptist declares this. And then we're going to look at how the Trinity declares this. And so let's get started. Mark declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Look at verse 1 of Mark 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And verse 1 alone could stand as an entire sermon itself. To, to reiterate, notice how Mark starts the book. He jumps right to it. If you have any familiarity with the other gospel accounts, then you would see how Matthew begins with kind of this long list of names, a genealogy. It leads into the birth of Jesus. Luke has this angelic visit, a foretelling of, of both Jesus and John's births, followed by a birth story, the one that, you know, you know in the, from the Charlie Brown Christmas special every year that Linus recites. But then John he kind of jumps all the way back to creation and talks about it. But Mark here leaves nothing to question. He gets right out of the gate. If there's a title to consider of the entire book, here's what it is. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark signals to us that this is the beginning. A clarification that could perhaps summon thoughts of Genesis 1 and something new has occurred. Then notice the word gospel. This is the Greek word euangelion, which literally means what? Do you know what this means? Good news. Yes. In the 
Old Testament, kind of the application of this term would be commonly used for reports of victory from a battlefield. So if your country was in the midst of war, you'd hopefully know about that, or you'd probably know about that to some extent. And you and your household, everyone else in the town would kind of be on edge. You'd be worried or anxious. You'd be thinking, man, are we going to make it? What will tomorrow bring? Tomorrow, will we be captives? Will we be slaves? Will we even be alive? And what would happen is this, that once the battle was won, messengers would be sent into the land to proclaim this good news among the people. We've won, we've won. We're going to live, we're not going to die. That'd be great news, right? This good news, however, though, is not strictly limited to the battlefield. Isaiah draws on this gospel when prophesying of the commencement of God's kingdom. In Isaiah 52 and and 61, he talks about this. He foretells a time when God's people will be freed from oppression, when they'll receive peace and they'll be released from the bondage of their sins, when salvation will be their story. So when Mark announces the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's saying, hey, this is the dawn of a new day. A new kingdom is here. Salvation has come. And Jesus' name actually speaks of this. His name in the Hebrew is what we would kind of consider uh, Joshua, which means God is salvation. And in Christ, it's not his last name. My daughter and I talked about this this week. Jesus' last name, Christ? No. But this is referring to him as Messiah. It's not a dumb question. It's not a... Everyone thinks that. Like, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but a lot of, I'm sure people in this room in this moment thought that. But Christ refers to him as the Messiah, Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament. But Mark goes further. If calling him the Christ would leave any confusion, he makes this unmistakable claim by then calling him, he's the son of God. So Mark declares Jesus as the Christ by rooting this depiction of Jesus in the prophets of old. In doing so, he signals, hey, this is not just a brand new story, but this is a continuation of a story, a fulfillment of what has been promised. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. It's the announcement. Mark declares to us, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And after his declaration, it's almost kind of this out-of-body experience like you see in movies. It's like Mark stands next to us, he grabs us by the shoulders, and we just step back. And he allows us to see the bigger picture at hand. He takes us to the Old Testament. Look at verse 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So Mark has already declared to us the divinity of Jesus. But here he's continuing to draw on this truth. He's continuing to build his case by coloring in the Old Testament for us. Mark actually ties together three Old Testament passages here. One from Exodus, one from Malachi, one from Isaiah. But but what he's doing is supporting this case Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. 
Look at verse 4 and 6. Then John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. They're confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. When John appeared, there was much discussion about his identity. Think about what's described here. is a burly guy out in the wilderness, camel skins on his back, and he's like plated up locusts with a side of honey. He fit the mold, the appearance of the prophets, so much that people began to wonder if he was perhaps Elijah returned. If you were to flip back a few pages in your Bible and go to the end of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, in the last chapter, the last two verses of that, it says there that this is God speaking, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree and utter destruction. So the words of Malachi the last book of the Old Testament, they're followed by silence for some 400 years. And think about that for a moment. You've had God moving, speaking, providing, promising, and then silence. Generations, like 400 years. Generations have passed. And throughout the silence, probably about three things have happened. You would have the people of the day, probably they have took maybe the form of, or adopted a lifestyle in three different ways. One, maybe some held on to the promises of God. Like they kept looking, hoping for the promised Messiah. Two, you, you probably have those who held tight to the laws of God, really dug their heels in and began to kind of look down their nose at everyone who didn't keep all the rules. And then probably third along the way, you, you had people, some just be completely disconnected and forget everything altogether to live to the end of their own happiness. But what we have is, after the silence, we have this guy, John. He shows up in the wilderness, and he raises a lot of commotion because he comes in the likeness of the prophets before him. He had funny habits, but more than that, he, he was actually like a stand-up guy. He practiced what he preached. He came preaching a message of confession, of repentance and baptism, a message that he lived. It's not just that he spoke it. Jesus himself actually endorses John. If we were to look in Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says, Hey, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there's, not, there's risen no one greater than John the Baptist. So this guy practiced what he preached, which further fueled the message of transformation that he spoke, a message of hope that pointed to a Messiah who is to come and free them from their sins. Now, Mark has already directed us to see where these events that he's recorded source the Old Testament. He's explaining this isn't an afterthought. It's not a revision. The prophets spoke long ago, and here are their words blooming to life. But anchoring John as the forerunner, the voice crying out in the wilderness, he's further building this case. Jesus is the Christ. 
He's the son of God. Look at verse 7 of what John says. And he preached. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. He rhymes in that. I don't think about that. That's funny. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we know from verse 4 that John is preaching this need for repentance, right? We actually see in verse 5 people responding to his message. We see that from all over the country of Judea and Jerusalem, people are going out to him, being baptized by him in the river, confessing their sins. People came from everywhere out into the wilderness to hear his message, to respond by confessing their sin, acknowledging that they have sinned, by repenting of their sin, turning from it, and being baptized. So this guy has a following. But in verse 7, it says that John is actually trying to get out of the way and direct his followers to see Jesus. Why? Because John knows that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In Israel in this time, everyone wore sandals. It's like parking lot church at Free City, right? Everyone wore sandals, and and in that day, the roads are dirt, and so your feet get dusty, filthy from the roads that you travel. But for people of prominence, taking off their own sandals would be, like, considered undignified. So they, in turn, would, would have their slaves do this for them so they didn't get their hands dirty. In verse 7, John is saying, hey, don't get hung up on me. There's one who's coming after me who's so much greater than me that I can't even touch the dirt on his shoes. Like, think about what he's saying there. And then look again at verse 8. He says, I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So do you realize this? John's drawing this huge chasm that exists between him and Jesus. Sure, John is the one, he's hosting revival services out in the wilderness, but as he does so, as hordes of people gather to attend, he says, hey, there's one coming after me who's going to do far more than I could ever imagine. And he, because he has the power to do it, he will grant you the Holy Spirit. And this is because he's the promised one. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. John's life and his message Declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Mark and John both agree on this truth. And as we get in the next verse, the camera then kind of pans over, and we see the one who we've been talking about come into view. Look at verse 9. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John, in the Jordan. This is pretty straightforward regarding events. Jesus comes out in the wilderness. He's baptized, right? Not much question. However, there's like tons to unpack in that verse. We'll come back, visit in a moment. Keep going. Verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So what or who do we see here? Well, we see Jesus 
He's being baptized. And as he comes up out of the water, we see the Spirit descending on him. And three, we hear the voice of the Father speaking, blessing him. One, two, three. This is like intro-level catechism, right? My kids love this stuff. How many persons are there in God? There are three persons in one God. Another song. Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. Dun, dun, dun. Three persons in one God. It's good. It's actually really helpful. <laughs> I just performed it. I'll give you the other 51 of them. I wish I knew the other 51 of them. This, so really, in this, this account gives us a, a glimpse into the nature of our God. This is the three-in-one, the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is where we'll settle into the final point to support this truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that the Trinity declares this. Now, this could actually be an entire sermon. I was hesitant. Like, even this whole text, there's just so many places you could go with it where it's like 13 verses that are just slam full of stuff. This could be an entire sermon itself, an entire sermon series, so I absolutely expect anyone doctrinally minded in the room to be unsatisfied. When speaking of the Trinity, <laughs> we mean that God is one God, eternally existent in three persons. God does not morph into whatever version of himself is fitting for the moment. He's not more fundamentally one than he is three. He's not more fundamentally three than he is one. Instead, there is one God in three persons who know and love and glorify one another. And we see this on display in Mark 1. When Jesus comes up out of the water, the Father covers the Son with a blessing. He says, you're mine. I'm so pleased with you. And then, in the same moment, we see the Spirit descending and covering Jesus with power. And I want us to realize this. The Trinity visible here, the Trinity visible and in action here is not a new thing, but it's simply an eternal reality put on display in this moment. And for what purpose? I think there's tons of applications as to the why, but for the sake of today's text, I want to lean us just here that at the baptism of Jesus, we're invited to see the triune nature of God. We see the Father blessing, the Spirit descending, and then in tandem, this also serves as a confirmation regarding the identity of Jesus. So Mark's gospel testifies that the Trinity also, with Mark and with John, declares that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus accepts this role, steps into the water, the Father and Spirit affirm this role through word, power. But why does any of this matter? What are the implications of this for our lives, and why is this good news to us? And I think in, in simplicity, it's this, that the reality of, of Jesus being the Son of God actually invites us into this fullness of life, the satisfaction that the Trinity holds true satisfaction where we don't have to look to other things to be satisfied. 
Look back at verse 9. Jesus came out into the wilderness and he was baptized by John. It's not because he needed cleansing, for Jesus is the spotless lamb of God. But he went into the Jordan and he was baptized so that he might come and identify with the lowliest sinners. In doing this, he aligns himself with us, those that he came to save. After all, if he's the Christ, the Son of God, salvation is his work, right? So I I hope that you hear, like, the comforting beauty of this truth. Uh, Like, what kind of God would we have if we just brought our cares to him and, and he hadn't experienced them? He said, yeah, yeah, I get it. Or he was simply dismissive. Like, how many of you have walked through maybe a specific season of life? Maybe you're in it right now where you've courageously brought your burdens to someone you know and trust. Maybe you're like mourning the loss of a job or the inability to find work or longing for a significant other or you feel alone in the wrestle of finding contentment and singleness. Perhaps you've lost a loved one or you're like beginning to dig into the, the hell that so-called loved ones put you through. Or you're in your 36th month of despair because you were supposed to get pregnant three years ago. Like how many times have you worked up the courage to bring something before a trusted friend and when you do so, you, you quickly realize, well, they have zero comprehension of what I'm talking about. Like they hear you, but they quickly jump straight to, well, here's what you need to do. Have you thought about trying to do this? As if you haven't had like countless sleepless nights trying to work to that same end already, right? Man, I'm afraid I'm guilty of that type of being, that type of friend. I've also been on the receiving end of bringing something to someone and feeling like they have no idea what what I'm talking about. But then what about times where, man, I pray that you've experienced this. If you, you need to be in a city group, maybe just so that you can experience this. I'll just throw that out there. I hope that you've experienced times where you offer the weak, broken places of yourself to someone, and it's as if the heavens break open, as if, like, God sees and hears you, and that person, without flinching, explains how they understand what you're walking through. They've even got stories to back it up. And as they unpack their story, you start to feel less alone. And as they describe their feelings based in similar circumstances, not just that you feel less alone, but you feel known and cared for. You feel loved. This is precisely what Jesus enters into as he steps into the River Jordan. Look at verse 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And there were angels ministering to him. So as the words, my beloved son, are still ringing out, Jesus, he's thrust into the wilderness immediately, it says. And the Spirit of God led him there pushed him there. 
It's here that Jesus is tempted by Satan. Mark doesn't unpack the scenario any more than this. Like if you were to look to the accounts of Matthew or Luke, we'd see the, the how Jesus is tempted. But here we're given a time frame, a reality, and some accompanying details. But there's a significance to the time and place. And 40 days in the wilderness should bring to mind to us, if we know anything about the Old Testament, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness for Israel. The place where they went and were sent and led to, and the place where they grumbled, where they complained, where they failed to trust God as he daily, graciously provided for them. Jesus goes into the wilderness as the better representative the second Israel, and he is faithful in this. But notice the details. Here, he is tempted by Satan. This should be like darkness. If we were in making a movie, this is really dark, right? Satan. He's also with the wild animals. And I believe this detail is, is lost on us and would actually, if we understand it, it helps kind of darken this picture a bit more so to contextualize, here's, here's what I mean. Emperor Nero was in power at the time that Mark's gospel was recorded. Although he didn't necessarily begin as a, a really manic, terrible leader, by the year 64, things changed. In Rome, there was a, a great fire, and it destroyed much of the city. It lasted some seven days and, and ultimately laid waste about 80% of the place. Many, like, you know, kind of thought maybe Nero did this. But in search of someone to pin the blame, Nero turned and looked to Christians. He sent out his military. He rounded up anyone who bore the name of Jesus. And, and then when arrested, he would clothe the Christians in the skins of wild animals and turn them loose in the square and, and let the wild, feral dogs have at them to the point of death. Other followers of Christ would be dipped in tar and, and ignited to be lanterns around Nero's property to illuminate the night, while still others would be brought into the Colosseum and fed to the lions as a spectacle. And he was with the wild animals. Mark includes this note because he wants to help his readers understand. He empathizes with us. He realizes that there's a big, big, big temptation to shrink back in faith in, in the face of strong opposition. But he wants us to know you're not alone. There's one who's gone before you, who's taken up your place, and he identifies with you because he's been there, and it's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. In closing, I want us to consider the metaphorical wilderness. I know I mentioned at the beginning, made a joke, it's kind of a loss, but talking about the losses of the year. It's the place, maybe as we just like, think about an inventory of what we've experienced over the last 12 months. It's, it's probably a lot, but we'll just call it that metaphorical wilderness for the sake of this. The place where we've been stripped of what we've become accustomed to. But I actually want us to not just consider the last 
year, but life as a whole. And in doing so, I want us to hold ourselves out and perhaps just acknowledge temptations. And we need to consider this. Like, when you come to know Jesus, the Christ, that he's the Son of God, when you come to know this, you too receive the blessing, the power of the Holy Spirit. And you too will experience and are sent out, sent out, let's not miss that, sent out into the wilderness. When you declare Jesus as Lord, you are now at odds with Satan. You're more of a threat to him because you now submit to a new kingdom, a kingdom that actually has power over him. Therefore, you've got a target on your back. However, you're also God's. And he leads you by his spirit to conform you into the image of his son through the trials of life. So I think this is the way to think about this. It's twofold. Mark 1 is clear. For Christ, the wilderness was ordained by God. We see that, right? It's the place of testing. But also, it's the place where we see Satan lurking, the place of temptation. And this is the same for us. But we have to realize the difference between testing and temptation. While on the surface, they might get us to the same place, the wilderness of sorts, the intended outcome is altogether different. Satan tempts you to dismantle you. He holds things. He holds feelings or people or yourself before you in an attempt to hook you, to keep you looking, searching for satisfaction, or even to remember the past better than it was. But God, God ordains the wilderness. It's the place of testing where he removes all vices. He strips us of the strongholds that we've so long used in an attempt to satisfy our thirst. And as we experience loss, as we experience this thirst, he holds his arms out wide to us and welcomes us into the reality that he is enough for us. The wilderness is the place of sanctification. The place in which God invites us to fully depend upon him. This is true for Jesus, and it's true for us. Over the next few weeks, we're going to continue to look and, and see the life and the experiences of Jesus as they unfold in Mark's gospel. Next week, we're actually going to look and we're going to see Jesus on the other side of the wilderness, victorious against the schemes and temptations of Satan. And this is, as 1 John 3 explains, this is the reason the Son of God appeared, to destroy the works of the devil. Pray with me. Lord, I do ask that tonight that we would evaluate where we are in life. That we would look at the, the difficulties that we walk through, the, the difficulties that we've experienced in life, and, and that we wouldn't just settle in what, how we interpret them, but we'd hold them up before you. That you, by your spirit, would help us understand like where in life does temptation exist? Where in life 
this testing, like you conforming us into the image of Jesus, where does that exist? And Lord, would you lead us? We look at your word and we see that you are faithful to lead us by your spirit. And so we commit ourselves to you to do so. So move among us tonight. Lead us even from this place to look more deeply into, to set our eyes on, our hearts on, to fix our lives around this reality that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And he's worthy of our worship. So draw our hearts to worship him. Amen.